everyone worships. Sure, not everyone wants to call it worship or even think about what they're doing. But everyone worships something. Everyone has some ultimate thing that they center their life around. Something or someone that they hope will give their life meaning or purpose. For some, it's religion. For others, it's money. For some, it's fun. For others, it's success or power or science or knowledge or beauty or popularity. For some, it's love or sex. For some, it's their family. But the Bible says, all things were made by Jesus and for Jesus. This means we were created to worship, but there is only one who is really worthy of our worship. That's why nothing else in this world satisfies. We keep on looking, we keep on striving, we keep on buying, but nothing delivers. Nothing brings us that deep satisfaction that we long for. But when you live your life with Jesus as the center, you're doing exactly what you're created to do. You're right in the place you're supposed to be. So the irony is that when we give our lives over to worship Jesus, that's when we actually find ourselves. Everyone worships. But we were made to worship just one. Talk amongst yourselves while we do the switch over here. This is set two. A story uh, that we have from our text today that that we're uh, that we're looking at has a lot of little hooks in it. I was uh, just reading it, going, "Where do you want to go with this?" And I realized, "Wow, there's a lot of places we can go with this." And then I realized that's kind of how it is with Jesus. Wherever he is, and whatever it is he's doing, whatever comes into contact with him, whatever comes into his presence, is pretty much undone. I mean, Jesus is so true. He is so the real deal. He is so the authentic article that Anything that comes into contact with him is exposed for whatever it is. So you have the Pharisees, who at first, they're not Jesus' enemy. They're looking at this hotshot new rabbi who's got a lot of charisma 
and seems to be able to attract people and they're looking at him to see if he's going to be one of them. When they realize that he's not going to be one of them, and not only is he not going to be one of them, he's going to oppose him, it's then that they get together and try to connive a way to entrap him. And, and it's brilliant, some of the stuff they try to pull. But Jesus is so the genuine article. He has absolutely nothing to hide. And so I'm, it's, he's, he's a very smart man, obviously. He's even cunning in the way that he's able to step out of their traps and leave them trapped in their own trap. But more than anything, what happens is they come into the presence of Jesus and are exposed for what's really going on. He's the real deal. When Jesus is before Pontius Pilate, he's been beaten. He's awaiting sentence. Pilate's already decided what's going to happen is that he's going to send this man to his execution. And yet if you read the narrative Pilate is used to guys coming before him and blubbering like idiots begging for mercy. Jesus doesn't do that. He is the real deal. And even Pilate has to respect that, even though he sends him to his death. Herod doesn't want to touch him. Herod's already executed a prophet. He's not going to even go there again. In the presence of Jesus, he's exposed. This is how it is in our own lives. We come into the presence of God and we have kind of a play-acting life that we lead from time to time and we come into the presence of Jesus and the further that we go into his presence, the further we let ourselves go and worship, the more we realize we're kind of wearing a Halloween costume that our kids wore last year. I mean, the further we get into the presence of God, the more exposed we are. And it doesn't take long before we realize we look like a clown. This isn't who we really are at all. The false is exposed. The author John Eldridge calls this a well-crafted fig leaf. He says our personalities are a well-crafted fig leaf. And in a way, this is true because we present a certain position and personality to the world. And this is how we're known. And we carry that into our community of faith. We carry that into everything that we do. And yet there's always the inner monologue going on, right? There's always the inner life. And we know what's really going on in our lives. And we know that Jesus knows what's going on in our lives. And so the further we come into his presence, the further whatever is false in us is exposed because he is true. So in John's gospel today, we see some encounters with Christ. We see people coming into the Lord's presence and some interesting reactions to 
to how they respond to Jesus. Jesus is in Bethany. And this is about a mile and a half outside of Jerusalem up on the slopes of the Mount of Olives. He's at, um, at Lazarus and Martha and Mary's home. They're kind of an upper class um, brother and sister combo that have become friends of Jesus. And, and so Jesus hangs out there a lot. So it's kind of like the, the camera pans in and here we are. Here's the setting. There's a party going on and it's in Jesus' honor. And um, it's because Jesus happens to have raised Lazarus from the dead. And so it's a, um, it's, it's a bit of an important party. And so people encounter Jesus, and there's a lot to be said about how they react and how this translates into our own life. The first person that we meet is Martha. Now, the Gospel of John tells this story, but the synoptic Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell this story so we can get a harmony of what actually happened there from these other Gospels. Martha is busy serving everybody. She's trying to make everybody happy at this gathering. But it doesn't take long in the presence of Jesus to find out what's really going on in Martha. Her sister Mary's sitting down there staring at Jesus at his feet. Martha's busy making everybody happy. And finally, exasperated, she comes over to Jesus and basically says, look, I'm making everybody happy for your nice party and my sister's sitting here watching you. Would you please tell her to get off her butt and help me? Jesus' response is, Martha. Martha, you're anxious about a lot of things, aren't you? Mary's chosen the better part. I'm, I'm not going to take that away from her. The next person that we encounter is Lazarus himself. The text says that he's reclining there next to Jesus. And that's a beautiful picture. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Lazarus was wrapped up and buried in a tomb. He was dead, and now he is alive. And he is in the presence of the man who somehow had the authority and power to call him back from death. So Lazarus has been and come back, and he is with the man who brought him back. That must have been an exquisite, contented moment for him, because there's no more questions. He knows who Jesus is. He knows that he's put his faith in God. He was dead. He is now alive. He is comfortable and content, reclining with the master. The next person that we encounter is Mary. Her reputation throughout church history is that she was redeemed from much. Roman tradition is that she's Mary Magdalene, and the evidence is pretty compelling that she probably is. 
she was redeemed from demonic oppression by Christ. She had a sketchy past, less than stellar reputation. And she's at Jesus' feet, and she's been at his feet more than once. And this is an important thing. To sit at the feet of a rabbi at this time meant that you were an apprentice or a student. So for a woman at this time to be sitting at the feet of a rabbi at all was highly irregular, a very, very special circumstance. For a woman with promiscuous overtones and a checkered past to be sitting at the feet of a rabbi was scandalous. And so Mary coming into the presence of Christ is undone. She falls to his feet and weeps. Her tears fall on his feet. She pours perfume on his feet. She uses her hair as a towel. And this is a beautiful scene. But let's put this in context. Think for a moment of the person that you love most. Maybe this is your husband, your wife, one of your kids, all of your kids, another love. Perhaps at some point in your life, you've felt an overwhelming sense of love for this person. Perhaps this overwhelming sense of love for this person has even brought tears. Think of that for a moment, that experience. Normally, what happens when we have an experience like that, we're, we're facing the one that we love, we're looking into their eyes, we're in their presence. What's happening with Mary here is another level. Imagine falling to, your f to the floor at the one that you love's feet, not even able to look at them in the face because you are so overwhelmed. Right? This is a different level that she's at. She's fallen to his feet. In the Gospel of Luke, She's not even able to be in front of Jesus. She's behind him, reaching forward to touch his feet. She is completely undone. She knows who she was, and she knows who he is. And she unravels in his presence. The next person that we come into contact with is Judas. Now, in the other Gospels, it's not just Judas. This is all of the disciples. They're watching what's going on here. And the moment is completely lost on them. There's this woman. She's blubbering all over the master, pouring expensive perfume that is a year's wages in value. 
they probably know a bit about her reputation and past. She's probably the kind of girl that they would give a knowing glance to each other about. Maybe tell an off-color joke about. She has a reputation that she's been available and been around. So for her to be blubbering all over Jesus, they're probably a bit appalled. And then for her to take a year's wages worth of merchandise and pour it all over his feet. Well, Judas is the one that speaks up. And he questions the wisdom of this kind of display of love. Couldn't we have better used this to feed the poor, maybe? Of course, he's got his hand in the cookie jar. And it's ironic that he's saying this kind of thing since he is making a deal for the life of Jesus behind the scenes. Judas is able to come into the presence of Christ and remain absolutely unmoved. The last person in this scene is found, from the, found in the seventh chapter of Luke. His name is Simon. He's a Pharisee. He's known as Simon the leper. So this Pharisee has leprosy, and he is absolutely ritually unclean, and he knows it. He is unclean, and he knows it. For Jesus to be in his presence at all is unusual. It makes Jesus unclean. He knows he's unclean. Yet he's watching what's going on with Mary and thinking to himself, there's no way this guy can be who he claims to be. If he were who he claimed to be, he would know who this woman is that's touching him. And he wouldn't allow it. So in the story today, we have five people encountering Christ with five different postures. We have the busy worker serving. And it's not that the work or the service is the problem. It's the why of it. She's busy working, looking for affirmation and validation. And it's a trap because she's looking for validation and performance. An activity for God is not a relationship with God. And so she's busying herself, performing well, so that all those around her will know just how hard she's working and serving and so that hopefully Jesus will notice as well. And when he seems to not notice, that's when she approaches him to get something from him. Make Mary help me. We have the man who's been brought back from death to life. He is contented in the presence of Christ. His questions have been answered. It's settled He's gone and come back. There's nothing more to say. We have the woman who has a story that should forever make her good for nothing but further use and abuse. She knows 
who she's been. And yet this man has looked into her soul and has accepted her. She's unraveled in his presence. We have the person who knows that they are unclean. They know they've got a problem. They come into the presence of Jesus and still aren't convinced that he is who he says he is. And then we have the man willing to play the game. He's in the presence of Jesus for no other reason than what he can get out of it. He's unmoved by the fact that he is in the presence of God. He's looking for the angle. How have you come into the presence of Jesus today? What would it feel like to be absolutely undone in God's presence? What would it be like to be content in knowing that you've been raised from death to life again and the questions are answered? What would it feel like to take the leap of faith when you're not sure this is who he claims to be? And put that to rest. What would it be like to lay down all this activity and performance-based relationships? and understand that value comes from Christ within. What would it be like to know where you've come from and that Christ has looked into your soul and accepted you? What would it be like to worship God with nothing, nothing held back. You play that last clip for me, Christian. I wanted to be a wife and a mother that was different than the wife that I had seen my mother be and give my children a different childhood that I had. And so I had spent my years dreaming of what I thought a marriage should be and what a husband should be and one who would protect me and guide me and um, love me. I grew up not knowing what a family was. My mother's identity came from men. I saw men come in and out of our home. We were sworn to secrecy. Our house as a child was very chaotic. We never knew if my dad was drinking when he came home, if and when he came home. My dad raped me at the age of six and throughout um, my life up until about the time I was 16. And you know, everything about my childhood, it was just, um, it was lonely, it was, it was hard, it was not what a child deserved to have. I continued to follow in the life of finding men who were abusive, what I knew, abusive um, alcoholics, 
but all I wanted was to be loved and for me being loved was having a sexual relationship and um, I was willing to do anything to have that. I left my husband and my children for another man. It was very hard. Um, you know, a learned behavior. I was doing all the things that I had promised and wanted never to do um, to my children. I was repeating that behavior. I felt dirty, I felt shameful, I felt um, guilty. I didn't want the life that I had. I wanted to be um, different. I would say, okay, Lord, you know, I'm gonna just trust you and I'm gonna share the desires of my heart with you. And we're just gonna walk this out because you're all I've got. That night I asked Jesus into my life. He was my only hope because the course I was taking was a crash course and I needed him. This was in February. Well, in March, April, I met a man. And I just knew he was from God. By August, Jay and I were engaged. We brought a beautiful home together. And he loved me and he loved my children. God spoke to me one day, as clear as clear can be. And he said, he said to me, he goes, how can I heal you? You're not willing to heal yourself. I gave him his ring back. And um, I told him, I said, God has spoken to me personally. And um, I have to trust him. And I have to let him be um, the husband that I've never had the father that I never had. I have to let him provide for me because otherwise our marriage would never work. someone that I could trust, that I could share my deepest, darkest secrets with. I had started Christian counseling with a, um, an inner healing process with an amazing woman named Joyce. There were days where we would just pray and we wouldn't say anything. And there were other days where we would go through step by step as if peeling an onion and just revealing and, and, um, and each layer that came off, the closer I knew I was to a new life. It was easier for me to share what my mother had done or my father had done or my ex-husband had done. 
but it was harder for me to share what I had done. One day I showed up um, for our counseling session and I went in and said, okay, Joyce, I've forgiven everybody, you know, my mother for this, this, and this, my father for this, this, and this, and I said, I'm done. I am ready to go. I am ready to continue my walk with Jesus. And um, she just sat there and she sat there she goes, and she prayed and she said, there's still more work to be done. And I wanted to run and I wanted to go and I couldn't because I knew what my choice was. I could either go back to the life I had or to continue on this walk. And um, I said, okay, I've got one more thing to tell you. And um, she just sat there and prayed. And I said, my senior year of high school, I had an abortion. All I wanted was to be loved. And that's all I knew to do. And she just sat and she sat and she sat and she prayed. And uh, I thought, okay, why can't I leave? And um, she just continued to sit there and I said, okay, this is it. I'm gonna tell you one last thing and I'm finished. After I left um, the boys and their father for the other man, I said, I got pregnant. And I said, I couldn't have that child because um, of all the guilt and shame that I already carried. She just didn't say anything. She just sat there and prayed. And I thought, okay, Lord, how would she know? How could it? nobody knew um, that there was one last thing? And I realized that God knew and He wanted me pure, that He didn't want to let me go. And so I just looked at her and I said, Joyce, I said, I had one more abortion. And I said, it wasn't very long ago. I said, it was with with Jay and um, I said but the hardest part was I knew Jesus then and I didn't turn to him and I said and what even made it harder was it was uh, Jay's only child and we just sat and we prayed and I looked up and my greatest fear was that she was going to be gone and Jesus would be gone. And yet they were persistent and they knew at that point that there was nothing else. And I knew at that point that I was free. I walked out of her office that day and I no longer lived in a great world. I lived in a very black and white world. The sky was bluer, the grass was greener, the birds sang, and it was as if I walked into a whole new world. And I knew that day who I was in Him and that He loved me and there was no more guilt and shame that 
it was gone. He was now carrying that for me. And I was now capable of um, being the wife and the mother that he, and the person that he created me to be. I had shared my secrets and all that I had with Jay. And he knew everything about me too. And so there were no more lies, there were no more secrets. There was um, a new relationship. And um, two and a half years later, I'm married Jay. And it's we've been together for 17 years. I couldn't have a marriage of, in a relationship of 17 years if God wasn't in it. I wasn't humanly possible of accomplishing that on my own or being the mother that I am to my boys today. My greatest goal in life is one day to stand before Him For, and for him to look at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant for whom I am pleased. Hurry home because you have three precious children waiting on you. I am Lisa Luby Ryan and I thank God every single day that I am second.